Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Time for part two of Casablanca. In part one, we talked about how Casablanca is this emblematic culture of small world. It's not subscribed to a larger purpose or mission. It's the ceiling on hope. Whether you choose to be in Casablanca willingly or you're stuck in Casablanca, it's throttling your ability to contribute to the larger mission. And so we started to talk about how to identify when we're in Casablanca. And then at the end, we went into how are we going to get out of Casablanca? Or if somebody that we care about is in Casablanca, how do we help them to escape? In part two, we're going to talk about some of the key characters and how they do or don't escape Casablanca. So for example, we have Laszlo, who's the idealist. We have Rick, who's the realist. We have Ilsa, who's kind of a hybrid between the idealist and realist, trying to find the wisdom line. Sam's a pragmatist. Captain Renault is clearly a hedonist, just searching for whatever the next short-term gain he can get is. And the Germans are these ideologues who have taken their ideology and nationalism and tried to enforce it totally on the culture. So what we want to talk about is how everybody has to make a sacrifice in order to escape Casablanca. When you find your company, yourself, your family, whatever your unit of humans is stuck in Casablanca, the lesson that we learned from this movie is that everybody has to sacrifice in order to escape. And just because this movie was made in 1942 about World War II doesn't mean that that same lesson doesn't apply to us today. Welcome to Wonder Tour. All right, I'm Brian. I'm back here with Drew. Welcome back, everyone, for part two of Casablanca. So let's step outside of our World War II mythological story here a little bit. And I want to touch on something that Drew mentioned off mic just now. So many times in the modern world, as we record this in 2022, we've enabled the creation. We've enabled people to drop into these little Casablanca environments with our modern digital tools, with our modern digital world. One of the cliches, of course, is the social filter bubbles or some you know, phrases to that effect, but that it is actually quite easy to isolate yourself from the outside world, to isolate yourself from information about the bigger world, to isolate yourself from challenges that are happening in the real world or the necessity of being aligned with a bigger purpose or with you know, sort of the deeper currents that are flowing through our, your environment. And just surround yourself with comfortable and familiar and repetitive things that maybe give you small pleasures. Very much in the same way we see the characters in this movie. They're all immigrants to this environment. They've all come to Casablanca for their own reasons, and they're just sort of trying to survive there. And some people are trying to get out, and some people are quite comfortable in their little bubbles. So how does that strike you, Drew? What do you, what do you think about that, your experience in the modern world where you find your Casablancas? I love how we've iterated this Casablanca as the central metaphor. Normally we have some sort of a metaphor like, you know, expanding the map in Beauty and the Beast. But here we've made Casablanca the central metaphor because it is that meta analogy that we're looking for. That Casablanca culture is a problem at work. It's a problem at home. And it's a problem as an individual that we can even more so, like you mentioned, Brian, in this digital connected world, 
while that has its benefits, it also allows us to still accomplish all of our essential needs by ordering on Amazon or by just ordering food to be delivered. And I don't have to go out and engage with the larger world. And I think coming out of COVID, we all had some of that experience in one way or another where we created a Casablanca for ourselves or we joined a Casablanca. And we just hunkered down and decided that that was the best approach for now was let me just cushion myself from the blows that keep coming from the external environment. So I don't have an answer necessarily here, but I just want to start with this shared experience that I think most of us have of, yeah, I've been in a Casablanca. I still have some Casablancas, right? I still know the Casablancas at work and I can identify where those departments are that are extremely siloed and have a Renault, <laughs> you know, they have a captain who's just trying to make the metrics make sense and letting a lot of the other things slide, right? You know, I've seen those type of situations before. You know, a, a funny little like trivial Casablanca, right? I love pro football. On Sundays at 1 p.m. until at least the end of the 4 p.m. game, so for like seven straight hours, right, I am locked in in a small confined container where I have multiple TVs, multiple devices to be checking stats on, and you know, but I'm in my Casablanca. I'm in Drew's saloon and I'm just like, all right, well, don't bother me, anybody else. I know I care about the mission. You know, I cared about the mission Sunday morning and I'll care about it again Monday morning. But right now, don't bother me with human troubles. Yes, I'm in this I'm in this little world and I know the rules and the other people are taking all the actual risks. My risks are very small. Yes, absolutely. I don't have to have any aspirations outside of that. So, yeah. And that's actually maybe an example of a healthy version, right, is if you can drop into that safe space to recharge. You know, if you want to go gamble and listen to Sam sing and, you know, drink a couple of beers in the afternoon, like that's probably not terrible. But as a life plan, it's got some real limitations, right? And it will not survive contact with real challenges. So I'm going to propose another model here because we've been talking about sacrifice. I was going to say sacrifice and alignment are sort of essential elements, but I think I'm actually going to pitch this as a three phase model for getting out. And so there is alignment, which goes to the hope element we talked about. You have to have a purpose. You have to have a hope for something better. You know, you have to believe that that can exist and that you can get there. So that's your first step. And your second step is the engagement. You have to have the belief that you know the mechanism to achieve that hope. That you, you, not just, you don't just have a direction, but you think that there's a series of actions that you can take that will get you to that thing. And then inevitably, what you're going to encounter is the third step. The most difficult part is the sacrifice, is that by definition, achieving something you don't have today, stepping into the bigger world, engaging with a larger purpose, by definition, that's going to require you to sacrifice something, at least your immediate comfort and your free time to sit on the couch and watch football, but possibly something bigger. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's just play with this model and see if it works. But let's talk about that a little bit. The characters in this movie, what sacrifices are they presented with and what sort of engagements do they have available to them that may have been there all along or may not have occurred until the sort of disrupting events that happen in this movie? Yeah, so on the crawl coming in, we talked about some of the different characters and the type of archetypes that they play or what they kind of subscribe to. So I think we should just hit the mountaintop and then let's roll into each of these individual characters here. Perfect. Yeah, because I think I like, I like starting are. with this character. Let's do it. Yeah, so let's start with Ilsa. 
I think that Ilsa is the character that I connect the most to in this movie because I think she's trying to balance the realism and the idealism and doesn't want to get caught too far on one side or the other. And as a result, she's kind of making some predictions about what could happen and then making gambles or using that layer of hope that she has, Brian, to then make decisions on beliefs and tactics that she's going to use, like pulling the gun on Rick. And so that's the moment that we're going to have is that conversation in Rick's room. Elsa is trying to get the letters of transit from Rick, and he doesn't want to give them to her willingly. And so she pulls the gun on him. Yeah. And she tries uh, she tries a bunch of different angles right before she escalates to the gun. Right. You know, she comes back and she wants to reconnect with Rick. She knows that she's hurt him badly on their unexplained parting in Paris because she was keeping some secrets from him. She knows that he's angry and disillusioned. So she tries just asking, and then they go through sort of a reconcilement, you know, an anguished conversation, you know, and she tries to convince him with logic. She tries to convince him with appeals to the higher purpose. None of this stuff works. He turns his back on her and she pulls a gun and she then threatens to shoot him to get the letters of transit. She's like, I'm, I'm done messing around here. Like, this, this needs to happen. This is important. This is more important than us. And then she kind of lashes out at him when he won't do it. You know, you're, you're a coward and weak. That's why you won't do it. It's not the right thing to say at that moment because he's not receptive to criticism from her. She's not wrong. <laughs> you know, he's, he's shying away from the challenge and she's calling him on it. But then she pulls a gun on him. In this moment, she's already sacrificing her love for him again. And this is the second time she's had to do it, right? Because she had to leave him in Paris when she found out Laszlo was alive. If you think about it, for Ilsa, Paris was her Casablanca. She was just indulging in, I'm going to be in love and I'm just going to do the thing because, you know, Laszlo's dead and the war is going to be lost and, like, I'm just going to take my pleasure where I can find it. And then when she finds out that Laszlo is alive, she kind of gets her hope back. She gets her alignment back and she makes the difficult decision. And so she's clearly willing to make the difficult decision. But in this moment, of course, she's willing to threaten to shoot him, which is, of course, giving up on their relationship altogether. Like, she's probably not... Even if she doesn't have to shoot him, if you give her letters of transit, she's not going to see him again. But she can't yeah. go through it. Yeah, she so let's can't bring go through hope it. in. Let's bring yeah. hope in here, Brian. Oh, okay. How, do you, how are you thinking we, about this? Yeah, how do we talk about hope? Because Ilsa, we talked about, has that strong foundation of hope at the point at which we meet her in Casablanca. She believes in this greater cause. She has seen, just like the rest of them have firsthand, the pain that the world is in right now the risk that the world is in right now with this Nazi regime and everything else that's happening. And she believes that she has a part to play in that. She has this strong foundation of purpose that if I don't do something, then nobody's going to do something. So I have to act. And that's why she's willing to pull. And I use the term visceral a lot. Well, I don't mean visceral as in like we're watching an open heart surgery. I mean, visceral as in like there's a violent or very deeply human only type connection, like pulling a gun is a human only thing in the world. Right. There's not right. a <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah, there's that implied threat is. Yeah, that's you're right. That's, that's really cool. My life is hanging by a string when you're pointing a gun at somebody's chest. And that is visceral. And so she finds herself at this crossroads at this scales of wisdom. Basically, the scales of wisdom are like swinging back and forth. And she's trying to understand what to do in this situation. You know, you can kind of see her processing it and you can extrapolate based on what we've learned in the rest of the film, how she's processing it. But she's kind of recognizing that she is willing to sacrifice. Like you said, she's already sacrificed Rick. She's definitely willing to sacrifice Rick. But what she's not willing to sacrifice is her hope and her character. Yes. 
And if she shoots Rick, then that is going to not necessarily disqualify her from her hope and character, but it's going to make her no better than Casablanca, right? She's just going to perpetuate that Casablanca culture and mentality in the name of, you know, the end justifies the means. Where Rick goes down, somebody else will come and replace. And it's the personal character sacrifice that she's not willing to make that makes her magnanimous. Yes, it will achieve her ends, but it won't. It's not it's not aligned. Right. So this movie draws an interesting distinction. Like we see a bunch of really good examples of there's a difference between sacrificing something uncomfortable, which is aligned with your higher purpose and doing a small bad thing to get to your higher purpose. And we see that consistently. Right. Rick is willing to. He's not willing to to actively do the bad thing. He's not willing to countenance the young woman trading herself for for the exit visa. And Ilsa knows that the bigger purpose demands that she get the letters of transit by whatever means, but she also knows that you have to behave with integrity, right? This is a, this has been a wonder tour theme all along, right? The, the leadership with integrity. And she knows that the kind of world she's trying to create, the kind of cause she's trying to support does not involve shooting your friends. And so she can't go through with it. And this kind of challenge, this choice between sacrificing something you're holding valuable versus doing the good thing or at least not actively doing the bad thing, all of these characters get confronted with this. So, yeah, so Ilsa is our first example. So she has already made the decision once to sacrifice her love with Rick on the altar of the higher purpose. And so she's clearly willing to do it again, but she's not willing to compromise her principles and shoot him. And so that's the sacrifice that she gets confronted with. So then she has to give up some agency. You know, she has to say, all right, well, I can't see a way out of this. What do you see? <laughs> what are we going to do here? I think the next logical sacrifice to look at here is Laszlo then. Right. Laszlo, he offers to sacrifice, he kind of doubles down on what Ilsa does. Ilsa offers to sacrifice her love. Laszlo, when he has the conversation with Rick and tells him, take the exit visas and take Ilsa, he's willing to double down on the love sacrifice and not just sacrifice his love, but also give Ilsa to somebody else. And then he's like, I'll also sacrifice my life, basically, because he knows if they leave, he's stuck here and he's going to be in a concentration camp or shot dead. Excellent. Yes, I, I totally agree. Because, you know, he is the archetypal magnanimous leader here. Whatever conflict he's feeling internally, and he tries to tell us a couple times, you know, he's like, I'm just a man and I'm just trying to figure out what to do here. He's not willing to leave her behind, even when he could get out. But he's doing the magnanimous leader thing of I'm going to throw myself on the grenade, right? It's more important to me, like, for the bigger purpose to thrive, for us to be in the world that I want to be in, people like me have to be willing to sacrifice the most important things to them. So what what could he possibly do that would be more important than his own life and the woman he loves going off with somebody else? And that's the example, right? Everybody else has to look at that and compare themselves to it. That's the value of those magnanimous actions, is that even offering them up, you know, challenges everybody else to step up to that level. So who else then has to sacrifice here, right? So then the other main player is Captain Reno. And he has made a living out of sacrificing his personal character, right? Out of, you know, sacrificing his morals. He says, I have no conviction. I blow with the wind. He is unabashedly two-faced. He's charming about it. But he's completely like, you know, I'm shocked to find there is gambling going on in this establishment. You know, your winnings, monsieur. You know, like, you know, like he, does, he has no shame at all. Not because he doesn't have any shame, but because he's developed the habit of that's the skill to survive. And so he keeps challenging Rick on, oh, you're a rank sentimentalist. Oh, you're actually at heart. You, you know, you believe in these causes. He recognizes that because he's the same way. He's just farther down the path of giving up on it. He's been sacrificing all along. He's done the bad things. He believes that that's the only way to act. 
But as the movie escalates, he is confronted with more and more difficult decisions about, you know, it's more and more clear that he can't have alignment even with whatever little level of comfort and principle that he has left. So his sacrifice comes at the very, very end of the movie. You know, when Rick's flipped the script, handed the letters of transit, got Nelson and Laszlo onto the plane, shot Major Strasser, killed the Nazi. The happy ending is within sight. A bunch of French police roll up and Captain Renault's standing there. Rick's got a gun. Major Strasser's dead. Victor Laszlo's escaped. And now Laszlo's got a decision to make. He can make the habitual bad decision of I'm going to try to maintain this bubble that I've got in Casablanca as best I can, which means I got to get I got to arrest my best friend. And then I'm probably going to get in trouble because I was involved. Or what he ends up doing, right, is what's the classic line? Go round up the usual suspects. (laughs) This is fabulous. As Drew said, it's fun to hear that line resonate down through. Like, you know, there's a whole movie that was based on just that throwaway line at the end. But so finally, Renault has to recognize that even as far down the path that he is, that there is an opportunity for alignment. There's an opportunity for him to engage. It's just a bigger sacrifice because he's more comfortable and more successful in his Casablanca environment. And so he has to pitch that over the side and we get the beginning of a beautiful friendship, which yeah, is such a great line because they've been calling each other friends for an hour and a half at this point. They've clearly known each other for years. So that <laughs> you know, that sentiment of this is the beginning of a sincere friendship. This is the beginning of us actually having a relationship as the people that we are and the people that we want to be and not as our outer self-defensive shells. That's really powerful. Oh, man, you hit on so many good things there, Brian. I'll try to wrap it into our fourth sacrifice, which, of course, is Rick. And we've kind of already talked about it in part one. But Rick, just like we see with what happens with Dom and Hobbes in Fast and Furious, just like what we see with how Belle sacrifices herself first for her dad and then for Beast in Beauty and the Beast, we see it again here where Ilsa offers to make a sacrifice. Laszlo offers to make a sacrifice. Then Rick, hope and sacrifice allows hope to roll a ball uphill, which is kind of crazy because otherwise the ball just rolls downhill and you just end up at the bottom with Renault and a ball of thread. But (laughs) it's it, it actually that sacrifice kind of flips the incline. I don't even know if I would say that maybe it doesn't flip the incline because there's still an incline that you're having to roll the ball up, but it almost like flips the gravitational pull to go upwards instead and pull the ball up the hill or flips it flips the gravitational pull to another angle to pull the ball up the hill instead of pulling the ball down the hill. And that is incredibly powerful. And that's how we see Rick's character being very dynamic here change. He sees those sacrifices. We don't have to touch on this. You know, love is recursive. We've hit on this in so many previous episodes. But then if he acts in kind and you kind of expect it because it's a movie and you probably because you've seen it before. But (laughs) you have the moment where, you know, Renault is expecting one thing and he does another thing entirely. And then to pull that back to Laszlo, right? Laszlo has that exact same moment mirrored the Twin Peak. He has it as well at the end where he has the opportunity to do the normal thing Renault would do and just try to weasel his way out. And instead, he does the hard thing and gives up his control, gives up his captainhood, whatever you call that, and goes on the run. Yeah. So, you know, in mythic fashion, right, Laszlo actually articulates this challenge. You know, Rick, Rick asks him explicitly, he's like, why do you keep fighting? Why do you bother? Like, you know, like I tried fighting and it was it wasn't worthwhile. We lost. It wasn't going to happen. The ball's just going to roll downhill is what he's saying. Rick just says, why do you keep pushing the ball up the hill? The ball's just going to roll down the hill. And Lasso just says it straight up. He's like, why are we breathing? Like, if we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting, the world will die. 
we just have to push the ball up the hill. That's what we're here for. That's the purpose. And so he articulates that very bluntly. And that level of belief, that level of conviction is contagious. That's what leads to the hope, right? Because he's willing to do it, because he's willing to keep walking the walk, other people believe that it can work. And because they believe it can work, then they will do it too. And when they do it, then their friends are like, oh, man, all right, fine, I'm in, you know, right? Like even the skeptics, even the laggards, even the ones that are bought into the comfortable little Casablanca bubble, even the Captain Renaults of the world will come around if the people that they like or respect or just enough of the people around them are making those kinds of decisions. Everybody wants to have the purpose. Everybody wants to have alignment. Nobody wants to sacrifice, but most people are willing to. Most of us are willing to like, all right, well, I guess this is the bigger thing I'm going towards. And so I'm going to have to take the hit, right? There are small moments of that and there are really big moments of that. But those opportunities are always there and we're much more likely to engage with them if we see examples of other people doing that. Yeah. And that's a good time to bring in that, you know, move from the movie to a personal application standpoint of what type of sacrifices do we have to make? And sacrifice to me is generally riddled with pain which is exactly why humans do not want to make the sacrifice. But when you see the example in front of you and you start to build the good habit of making the sacrifice where you need to instead of the bad habit like Renault of sacrificing your character, which is a slippery slope, you're able to go backwards toward this ideal state. We had the ideal state, or at least we had some parts of the ideal state, like we need to move into the future still. Time goes one direction, but we're able to move towards that ideal state and we see, you know, I can give some examples. Sometimes you have to sacrifice an unhealthy relationship. And that one seems easier than it is, right? When you yeah. have to cut somebody out because they're really just drawing too much energy from you or they're, they're drawing you into situations that you really shouldn't be in. Yeah, those little comfortable pieces of it, like at least I know how this relationship works and something else might be worse, right? Or I've tried to get a better relationship and I couldn't, so I'm going to stick with this one or this person's part of my family or part of my environment, so I just got to deal with it, right? But it's, yeah, those sacrifices are hard. Of course, you know, you know, a little bit of my personal situation, right? I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways in the choices that are available to me in my life, but I recently left a long, fairly successful career to go back to school, to try to pick up a slightly different flavor of career that builds on what I've done, but has, has got some new stuff in it. That's a big change. Like, I'm not making a whole lot of money right now, right? and I've got a very different texture of my day, and I don't have the group of colleagues that I had that I really liked. I don't have the big, comfortable corporation backing me up and paying for my health care that I used to have, right? And so those those decisions are really hard, and I wouldn't do that just because I was mildly dissatisfied with my role, right? Nobody would make that kind of sacrifice just, just for fun or just to see what lays on the other side. You have to have, in my case, not a super tangible, like, this is the one specific thing that I'm going to do, but I believe that I could do more of this. I could work more in this way. If, if I go get more educated, if I get more skilled, if I get more credible in this new space, I could go do more of the things that I love, and I believe that that could be better. And so I have some evidence that that might be true, but actually I don't have any tangible evidence that that's true for me. I'm just kind of jumped off the ledge. One of the interesting things that happened was, of course, I was worried about, you know, the group that I was working with that I liked, the team that I was leading that I really enjoyed working with, you know, how's that going to impact them? So I was being fairly selfish in, in walking away and going, going and doing my own things. And I got, you know, a lot of the reactions that you would normally expect of like, oh, good luck with that, or oh, we're going to miss you, or oh, I wish I had the ability in my life to do something like that. And I had one person that actually explicitly said, oh, wow, you continue to inspire us. 
Like, oh, that's really cool. I just saw somebody do a ambitious, hopeful thing. Ah, I should think about that. I was worried about the opposite way. I was worried about the how dare you leave us or what are we going to do or, you know, and of course I'm replaceable. Like, you know, wasn't <laughs> they're not doomed. But the idea that just watching me do that action would help somebody think about what's available to them wasn't something that had occurred to me until I had that interaction. But I've certainly been on the other end of it where somebody's done something like, oh, wow, you can do that? Like, I could do that. That'd be great. So as the magnanimous leader challenge of how can you be that archetype? How can you be the Victor Laszlo that shows the way forward? And what is the snowball that comes from that? Yeah, those moments. That was a great example, Brian. It's different for everybody what that sacrifice is, but you opened up another entire line that we could go down in probably in this series later, which is the step out of the boat moment <laughs> where, you, like you said, you don't know that there's going to be something to catch you, but you believe that there's a purpose and that there will be and that, you know, where you're going next is better than where you've been and that there's mm-hmm. a reason, even if that reason isn't so that necessarily you can make more money in the short, medium or even long term, but you trust that there's a purpose there. And that this is the right decision to make. And you showed that that loop, that loop exists. And I think this is something we've been struggling with. And we're going to continue to probably struggle with throughout this series. We struggled with it since day one of Wonder Tour, since episode one, where we talked about Obi-Wan, Ben Kenobi sacrificing himself, which is, is sacrifice required? Because it's really hard to talk about sacrifice. We prefer to talk about mercy and things like that, where somebody doesn't have to do the hard thing, doesn't have to go through the pain. Or take the risks, but I think we are leaning more towards not that sacrifice is required for humans to exist, but that to become a magnanimous leader for that type of character and to help others to become magnanimous, sacrifice is a part of that process. Sacrifice in this scenario is what incites the hope belief loop. If you want to have that hope belief loop actually become a loop and not just a straight line that leads to only your success, there has to be sacrifice because that sacrifice is what allows us to change the polarity and have the ball roll up the hill instead of down the hill. Yep. Well, and even in a growth mindset, you only have so many hours in a day. One of the classic business quotes is the Steve Jobs, something to the effect of focus is not saying yes to something. Focus is saying no to all the other things. That's a sacrifice. Which things am I going to not do? Which things am I going to not get? To be able to go in the direction that I want, to have alignment with my hope, to have engagement with my belief, to move in the direction I want to move. Yeah, sacrifice is the, and I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think sacrifice is one of the, (laughs) it's one of, if not the pivotal pieces of every concentric circle loop, pretty much. It's Mm. whether you want to talk about the growth mindset, the growth mindset requires a level of sacrifice for you to continue to grow and for you to continue to learn and develop and help others integrity the integrity loop requires sacrifice it, like you said with steve jobs it requires you to say no to a lot of things because otherwise you're going to become like renault compassion requires sacrifice all of these other things that we talked about we're not saying they require you to sacrifice your life necessarily but they might require you to sacrifice your personal ambitions they might require you to sacrifice being at the top of the org chart they might require you to sacrifice you know getting to go to dinner where you want to go to dinner <laughs> getting to spend yeah. the money Getting to spend your family's money how you want to spend your family's money. Yeah, getting to getting to spend your Sunday afternoons watching football, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, and just to, to bring it full circle to the context, this movie was talking about sacrifice and talking about hope and talking about alignment in an era where it wasn't clear that those things were going to work. And the reason that it resonates with us, the reason that we believe that this was the right message is because it did work, is because a whole bunch of people went and sacrificed really hard for another three years in a bunch of really painful ways. 
to win this war. And then after that, all of the other efforts that people had made to build the world that we're now living in, right? There's been good and bad initiatives and good and bad things happening all throughout that. But, you know, we at least have clearly evidence that this alignment was possible. It did work. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't inevitable, but it did actually happen. That's why the story resonates so well, is that it, it did actually play out in the world with real humans making these kinds of decisions. And so even though the elements of the movie might be exaggerated or corny, it's incredibly sincere and speaks to some things that are very truthful and very powerful for us. It so. follows the hero's journey. I mean, I would love to get into later on, you know, the, the scenarios where we can avoid the sacrifice or the other, maybe what are the other energy sources that fuel the loop other than just sacrifice? Because sacrifice, just because of the finality of humans, and we can go very philosophical here, sacrifice is the main energy source for these magnanimous loops, I think. But what are the other energy sources? So that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, let's put a pin in this one. I think we've had a really good time sort of exploring the nuances of the movie Casablanca and the metaphor Casablanca and the elements that contribute to that. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us as always. Next week here in the U.S., we're getting into a holiday season. And so we're going to hit multiple holidays in one movie. That's right. We're going to visit Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, and we're going to take a trip to Halloween Town. Until then... Have a great week, and just remember, as always, character is destiny.